you guys, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn to Galatians 1, um, we're going to be in verses, chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10. So it's a lot of ground to cover. Um, title for the sermon today is, uh, we're free, keep it that way, because we want to, uh, we want to make it not that way. So um, I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then, uh, and then we're going to pray. Uh, in verse chapter 1, verse 15, this is Paul, he says, But when he who set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for time to gather together, to be refreshed, to be encouraged. We rejoice, Lord, we rejoice at the gospel going forth among a people who, who haven't heard it. We rejoice, Lord. I agree in prayer with Sean. We rejoice just at, the, at you doing the work of translating your sovereign, good, and perfect word. That we have easy access, Lord, translating it into a language so that these people can have it and read it. We pray, Lord, that we know that your word cannot return void. We pray for blessings on it. Pray that you would use this time this morning as we are weak, as I am weak and broken and full of sin, but your, your spirit is powerful and we have been saved. We've been adopted as your sons and daughters. So use this time right now for our encouragement. In your name, amen. When you think of, a, uh, when you think of healthy relationships, uh, what comes to your mind? There are a lot of types of healthy relationships, so uh, let's just pick best friend relationship as an example. So uh, a lot of different ways to be best friends. And when I was growing up, uh, I had a best friend, and his name was Jeremy. This is a picture of, of us. Uh, and so uh, Jeremy and I, we were four months apart. Our moms are best friends. And so we spent a lot of time together. So this first, the picture on, the, on, the, on my on your right, uh, I, we, neither of our families went to church when we were growing up, so whatever nativity play we're in had to be through preschool or something. Uh, it's hard to tell in the picture. I think we've taken baby Jesus out of the manger, and we've replaced him with an army soldier that I'm about to run over with that truck. Um, my theology's better now than it was then. I made some progress. Uh, the other one is we're at the beach. Our families did go to the beach a lot together. Um, you can see I've always had nice manners, which is why I'm trying to shove that whole burger in in one bite. Uh, the, the, the boots and the velour long sleeve shirt, that's not my mom's fault. Um, I demanded to wear boots every day of my life as a kid, so that's why I have the cowboy boots on, even at the, even at the beach. And I was always like two seasons behind. So, so in the summer, I wore long sleeve. In the winter, I wore short sleeve. Uh, I was the third... And my mom was pretty beaten down, so <laughs> she, I could, I could just out-argue her. So, uh, I mean, you can see, actually, even in the play for the nativity, that's obviously at Christmas, I have short sleeves on. Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy has a long sleeve shirt on, so. Um, but anyway, we were best friends, and we were like brothers in a lot of ways, so we had some good times together. Uh, I remember, I, I don't remember, actually, I've seen pictures, and I've been told a story. Uh, one time when we were two... Jeremy and his mom came over to our house, and our moms left us in the kitchen alone, which is always a good idea, and, um, and we got in the fridge, and we got out tomatoes and eggs, and we threw them everywhere in the kitchen. Now, 
Some of that is on me and Jeremy. We've got to take responsibility. Some of that's on our moms for leaving a couple of two-year-olds in the kitchen alone who were prone to get in trouble together. So it's not totally our fault. So we had some good times together. We also had some hard times. We fought like brothers. I remember one time, this one I do remember, we were about five years old. We were fighting, and I had Jeremy in the headlock. And, and so I'm winning the fight at this point. I have him. But when you have somebody in the headlock, their face is close to your hand. And so Jeremy opens his mouth, and he clamps on my thumb. And I still have a scar on my thumb. And so at that moment, I release him. I let go. And uh, I don't know what happened after that, but the fight kind of ended from after he bit my thumb. So we had some, uh, we had some unhealthy things in our, relation, in our best friendship. Um, but when you think about a best friend, uh, what comes to mind? There are probably some, some universal principles that you want to have in a best friend. You, you want to have somebody who's dependable, uh, somebody who's loyal, uh, somebody who, who wants, to, you know, is a, wants to serve you, to have your best interests at heart. Um, but you may also have some preferential things that come into play. So uh, a best friend, you, know, you may want somebody who uh, will go to plays or go to the theater with you. Or you may want somebody who will play video games with you. Uh, or you may want a best friend who likes food, and so they'll go to restaurants and eat well-prepared food um, with you. Or, you know, you may, uh, like, uh, like Byron and Pastor Travis, like to watch sappy movies together, you know. So <laughs> it, it depends. there's a lot of preferential things in being a best friend. Um, not a lot of people know that about them. Um, <laughs> but there are, so there's, there's kind of foundational things uh, that, that are important in any friendship, uh, and then there's preferential things. So you don't have to go uh, on vacation together to be best friends, um, but you can't be best friends with somebody who spreads rumors about you or badmouths you behind your back. You can't be best friends with somebody who's, who's physically or emotionally abusive to you. So there's a lot of freedom in how you can have a best friend relationship, but it doesn't mean that every single thing in a relationship is permissible and for it to still be healthy. And this is kind of where we find ourselves with, with Paul in the Galatians. So Paul is going to come in and he's going to, he's going to defend the freedom that we have in Christ. <clears throat> and he's going to say, why? Why would you want to leave that freedom? Um, and he's going to talk about why, what the motivation is um, of why we want to pursue Christ. So Galatians is broken up into um, three sections. And the first couple chapters are really a lot of biography. So Paul's going to give a biography about his life before conversion, his conversion, and then, and then how God's been using him. He spends uh, chapters three and four talking about theology. So he's going he's to spend some time kind of backing up why we're free in Christ and what that means and how we can live. And then he's going to spend chapters five and six uh, talking about ethics and not ethics that are motivated from trying to earn God's approval or trying to please God or trying to get on God's good side but how to live your life as an overflow of grace because of the grace that God has shown us and because of the love and affection that we have for God. Um, and so that's kind of how the book lays out. But today we're going to look at a few different things. So as we're going through, keep these three things in mind. First of all, Paul's going to defend himself and he's going to defend the true gospel. Secondly, he's going to stress that we're free in Christ. So he's going to come back to this point over and over again. Uh, and then he's going to remind us that God's power works in our hearts and through his church. So again, Paul's going to defend himself in the gospel. He's going to stress that we're free in Christ. And then he's going to remind us that God's power works in our hearts and through his church. 
So some of these verses we're going to hit quickly because we've got 24. So, um, you know, unless we would be here till three or four if we did it all. So uh, we're going to hit some of these quicker, but I do want to go through all of them. So uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 11. He says, for you, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So he's reminding them that this is the gospel of God. It's not, uh, he didn't make it up. Um, and I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul here is going to build his credibility. So he's going to build up his credibility about who he is in Christ, about his apostleship, and then he's going to deliver his message. And that's important anytime you're given a message to build up your credibility, because we don't all have credibility in everything. So, um, for example, I have no singing ability. In fact, I have, I have negative musical ability. So if I, sang, if I sang for you, it would not be neutral. You would have to evacuate the room to flee for your ear's sake. So I'm telling you that so that if I ever come up to you and say, hey, why don't you come over to my house this afternoon? I'll give you some singing lessons. You should emphatically say no because I'm tone deaf. I can't hear harmony and I have a terrible singing voice. So I have no credibility to give anybody any kind of musical or singing lessons. So you will not see me up here on a Sunday morning with the worship team. But Paul's the opposite of me. When, when you look at his credentials and you look at his apostleship and who God had created him to be, how God had called him to be an apostle of Christ, he has a lot of credibility for who he is in Christ. And he's going to remind the Galatians about that and why he delivered the message the way that he did. And he's telling us that he preached the gospel to them. And if you go up and read verses 3 through 5, he, he, gives an, he's, he gives an intro into the gospel that he preached. Um, Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's saying, look, this gospel I preached to you, it's true, it's real. And if you think about the time in history when Paul is doing this, um, there were a lot of false gods, a lot of false doctrines from men that were floating around. So if you go about 800 years back from the time that Jesus came, you get the writings of Homer and, and the beginning of when the, the stories about Greek mythology were written. And so you have all these stories of all these different gods and goddesses. And then if you go forward a few hundred years from that, you hit Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, and you have all these philosophies of man and, and how to achieve kind of a, a utopia through, um, through these man-centered philosophies. And they had their disciples that were carrying on their legacies. And then if you just look at the Roman Empire at that time, there were so many cities there that had their own gods, their own temples um, for various reasons. And Paul gets in trouble in some of these cities for going in and preaching because they're worried it's going to discredit their city or the God that their city is known for. So at this day and time where Paul is preaching the gospel, he, he's swimming upstream here, so to speak, meaning not, not because he doesn't have God's power on his side, but there are a lot of false gods and false gospels that are being proclaimed. And so Paul's really working hard to try to make sure that these Galatians aren't deceived and that they hang on to the real gospel. And Satan really is a master deceiver. That's his natural state. That, that's how he naturally exists, is to try to twist and pervert truths and make them into lies and try to take 
lies and make us believe them as truths. That's essentially what he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He came to Eve and he said, hey, did God really say not to eat this fruit and you'll become like God? Wouldn't becoming like God be a good thing? And so she, she begins to, to believe this lie that becoming like God would be a good thing, even if the way you get there is to disobey God. And that's how Satan always functions. That's how he always works. He tries to come in and take lies and make them appear as if they're true. And so Paul's emphatically reminding us here that no, Jesus was really divinely man. He really did suffer the worst history and the tragedy of humanity by being killed as an innocent man for our sins. And it's through that work that he's offering us salvation. So don't add to it. Don't go back and try to put yourself under slavery or under these false gods. And he's going to go on in 13 and 14, and he's going to tell him about his former life. He's going to say, For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And I want to start there. Paul is reminding him uh, of two things. One, these, what he's being accused of, he used to be one of the people doing the accusing. If you read, Martin Luther wrote a, a commentary on Galatians. And if you read his commentary about these verses, he says, Paul is essentially, is essentially saying to these guys, look, I used to be a Judaizer. I used to preach the law. And not only that, I was better and more passionate than these guys are. If that had been true, I'd still be on their side. So why would you listen to them? Because I've seen that it's not true. And even if it was true, I did a better job than they did at it. And so he's kind of undercutting them. But he's also reminding them that this, they were zealous for the traditions of their fathers, not the traditions of God. They were not pushing forward trying to advance the kingdom of God. These were their traditions and their laws that they had developed outside of God's law that they're zealous for and they're trying to add to. And so when I was thinking about Paul's life, because um, he, he doesn't sugarcoat it here, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age. Um, and, or in verse 13, he says, you remember how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. It, reminded, it gave me, the Lord hit me with three reminders about um, Paul's life there. So we were all enemies of God. Paul was directly God's enemy, and we're all directly God's enemy too. None of us are born innocent. And so, He's basically saying we're all equal in a sense and that we spit on his grace and we try to pursue sin. And God always comes to us in our filth and he cleans us up and he accepts us and adopts us as his children. And secondly, not only are we all enemies of God, but no one is beyond God's reach. Now, I don't know if you're a follower of Christ, I don't know what your life was like before you began to follow Christ, but there's a pretty good chance that you had not set up your whole life's whole goal and mission to destroy and annihilate the church. And that's what Paul had done. It says in uh, Acts 3, this is before Acts 8.3, before Paul's conversion, this is what it says. Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So God reached this guy and opened his eyes to the truth. He took the guy that was trying to destroy the church and annihilate it and he made him the father of missions and church planting. So why? Why would I believe? Why would you believe that anybody is beyond 
the reach of God. Why would we limit his power? We say that we believe he's sovereign. We say that we believe he is creator and has dominion over all creation. So why would we believe that anybody is beyond his reach? Why would we try to limit God's power like that? And Paul is an excellent example for us um, because he was doing, not only was he just saying, I don't care about God, he was directly opposed to God and God reached in and saved him. And then finally, Paul reminds us that there's nothing in our past that's unforgivable. The only thing that's unforgivable is the only way we cannot receive forgiveness is to refuse to repent and turn to God. But Paul had all kinds of horrible things in his past. He had murder in his past. He had abuse in his past. It says he was dragging off men and women to prison. He says himself he was violently trying to destroy the church. God comes in and he saves murderers. He saves addicts. He saves victims of abuse. He saves abusers. That's what he does. And Satan, again, he's a natural deceiver. That's his state. That's what he wants to do. He wants to make you believe that your thoughts or your actions or your family or anything in your life that you've done will prevent you from coming to God. And God says, no, I, I have seen it all. I have, there is no sin that I cannot reach in and forgive and make you part of my family. So as a good reminder, as we think about who Paul was and now transition to who he became. So in verse 15, he says, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul reminds us quickly here that he came to the gospel in a non-traditional way. So he didn't have a friend or a relative or a co-worker who shared the gospel with him. He didn't go to a rally when he was young and run down front and pray a prayer. God directly appeared to Paul and blinded him. And Paul had a deep understanding of who Jesus was because he knew the teachings of Jesus. He knew what he was opposing And so when he realizes Jesus is real and really is the Son of God, all these things inside of him that are warring against God flip to affection for God. He he had a much deeper understanding of who Jesus was than a lot of people are when they come to faith because he was warring against. So he knew what he was battling. He knew his enemy, so to speak. And um, when he says in verse uh, 15, he said... um, Verse 16, or I'm gonna 15 and 16. He said, And when he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And that really hit me that pleased. God is a pleasing God. He's a blessing God. He is a God that's full of joy. And he wants to bless us and he wants us to be pleased and joyful. And it pleases him. It gives him joy, literally brings him joy to reveal Jesus to us because it's what we were made for. It's how we were made to live our lives, to pursue God, to have love and affection for him. It's why we were created. So he derives joy from it because it's what's best for us. And so he wants to give us what's best for us. He wants to give us joy. One of our maxims at TCC is biblical change is more about what we pursue than what we avoid. Sometimes in, in the culture, we can be known as Christians for what we avoid, what we boycott, what we don't like instead of why, how, how we are motivated and filled with love and affection for the Savior. And, and we want to be characterized as a, as a people who are fulfilling 
literally the destiny that God has for us, literally why we were created. And as I was thinking about this, um, I, th- I thought of a practical example. So let's say Saturday and you call me up and you say, hey, I'm going to grill out. You want to come over? I'm like, man, you don't want to come over and grill out. I love grilling out. So I come over and, uh, and we go on your back porch and we're, we're hanging out and I see a boat in your yard. And I'm like, oh, hey, how do you like your boat? And like, oh, I hate it. It's terrible. It's the worst. I'm like, no, people usually aren't animosity. They don't have animosity toward boats. What's going on? They're like, come on, I'll show you. So we go over, we get in the boat. You turn it on, you rev up the motor. I look over the back. I see the propeller in the air spinning. You're like, see, it doesn't work. It didn't go anywhere. And so I say, all right, come with me. We go to the lake. We put the boat in the water and it takes off smoothly through the water. We swim, we fish, we ski all day. We go back to the lake, back to the dock. And I say, see, the boat is made for water. You have to put it in water. That's how you enjoy it. That's what it's created to do. And you say to me, that's ridiculous. I want to drive the boat on the road. I want to go off-roading in my boat. Why are you so narrow-minded about boats? They got to be in water. I'm like, are you insane? The boat's made for water. I'm not being narrow-minded. This is what it's created to do. But we do these kinds of things all the time in our life where we forget what we're created for and what God made us to do. And we try to pursue other things. And then we, under why, we wonder why it's not working or why we're not fulfilled. And so Paul's reminding us here um, that it pleases God and it pleases us. It's good for us when we pursue him. It's not restrictive. It frees us up because we become like the boat in the water. So in verse 18 to 20, he's going to talk about, he's already said, look, I became a believer. I went, to, I went away into Arabia. And then after three years, he did go to Jerusalem. So he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So Paul is confirming that he went to Jerusalem after his conversion. And he met with Peter for a couple weeks and they hung out. Um, But he wants you to know, he wants us to know, he didn't go up there to sit at their feet to learn from them. He went up there as a peer. He went up there for mutual encouragement because he'd been faithfully preaching the gospel to the the Gentiles. And so he's going to go to these brothers now so that they can build each other up and be encouraged. And so he wants them to know that this is true, that he, he spent time faithfully pursuing God and doing God's work before he ever went to Jerusalem. Because he's going to show that there's not like one official dealer where you have to go and get the the Bible or you have to get the gospel from. And so he even goes under oath. So right there where it says, it's a little awkward in the English language, but there's a parenthesis and he says, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's essentially going under oath there. He's taking an oath to say, look, this is true. Even before God, I'm saying that this is true. And then there's a lot in verses 21 to 24. So I want to, I want to move there. Um, he says this, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And so Paul is basically going to kind of put the nail in the coffin here and seal his case. All right? So he's going to reaffirm his credibility and how he went to preach the gospel to Gentile areas and how those in, in uh, Jewish areas responded. So he says he went to Syria and Cilicia. 
Sean showed a graphic last week. So um, those areas were north and west of, of Israel. So they're kind of north and west, and then north of them you get Galatia. So that's who he's writing to, the area of Galatia. And so they would have known, you know, they would have known all this geography at the time when he's writing it. And so he's telling them, look, okay, let's think through this logically. I did not receive the gospel from the, from the apostles in Jerusalem. I did not receive it from a Jewish person. And after I got saved, I did not go to a Jewish area. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to Judea. I went to these Gentile areas and I preached the gospel there. So I didn't hear it from a Jewish person. I didn't go to Jewish people afterward. I went to non-Jewish people and I preached the gospel. Yet those in Jewish areas, Judea was like the heart of the Jewish area. Those in Jewish areas are rejoicing because of the fruit of the gospel that's bearing fruit. So if there are churches being planted and disciples being made there, and I had no contact essentially with Jewish people, if the gospel had to come, if you had to be Jewish to get the gospel, they would not have been rejoicing. So Paul is essentially saying, look, I am a legit apostle because I had no Jewish, um, other than I'm, the fact that I'm Jewish, I had no you know, kind of Jewish upbringing in the gospel. But the Jewish people were still, the Jewish believers were still rejoicing. So he's kind of going through this logical argument and kind of airtight locking down that he's a legitimate apostle. But the other point I want to make about this set of verses is uh, verse 24. It says, and they glorified God because of me. And so the, the Paul, what Paul's mainly saying here is the reason for all of this is for God to be glorified. The reason that I'm preaching the gospel the reason that I want you to have sound faith is for God to be glorified because he is the main character in history. He's the main character in all of our lives. Heather has a, a saying in her office uh, from John Piper. It says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. So this is a good reminder uh, and that there are a lot of us here and God's doing a lot of things in my life in your life, and the lives of those around us, and we're not aware of all of them because we are not the main characters. God is the main character. We have small bit parts in his grand play. And this is really something I've only begun to understand probably in the last year or so, is that I'd like to elevate myself and try to figure out how God is making, making how I'm central in God's mission. But his mission is central, and I'm just playing the part that he has for me. And it's a really good reminder because when we read through scriptures, people always get in trouble when they exalt themselves and shrink God. Again, if you think about Adam and Eve, that's exactly what happened. Eve exalted herself, wanted to attain equality with God, and she brought God down. And now we all, because of Adam and Eve and their sin, live under the curse of sin. If you think about the Old Testament and you read through and you look at the kings of Israel, they often are inflating themselves and shrinking God. You look at Saul. Saul was the first king that God chose over Israel. And he ruled for a long time, around 40 years. But at the end of his rule, he enlarged himself and he shrank God. So much so that he's literally fighting against God. God has made it clear that David will inherit the throne after Saul. Saul is trying to kill David. And at one point near the end of his life, Saul even kills God's priest. He goes and he has, the, he has the priest of God who were ordained by God that they had helped David, and he's so angry, he has them murdered. 
And so Saul had exalted himself to try to fight directly against God's plan, and it ended bad for him and for his son Jonathan because of Saul's sin. And so as we are, um, and I have a long way to go in this, but as we are pursuing things, it's best for us when we focus on God and we remember that he is perfect and lofty and exalted. And when we do that, not only do we not enlarge ourselves, but our fears and our anxieties and our disappointments will shrink because they'll be, we'll realize where we are in relation to God. So Paul's going to talk about going back to Jerusalem again. So we're going to transition to chapter 2, and it says this in the first three verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to become circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul's going to go up to Jerusalem, and he's going to go with Barnabas and Titus. And he makes it clear that Titus is a Greek. So he's going he's to basically show them Titus is a test case. He's going to say, uh, all right, we go up to the heart of where the Jewish people are. We go to Jerusalem, and we go to the Jewish uh, apostles. We go to where Peter, we'll see later, he's going to talk about going to see Peter and James and John. And so we go to what you want to classify as the main people. And even Titus, who was with us, we didn't have to circumcise. And if there had been a holdover from the law, all the law that was given, it probably would have been circumcision. Because circumcision was extremely important to the Jewish people. And it was how you became a Jew um, as a man. And God gave circumcision to Adam and Isaac, I mean Abraham and Isaac. He told Abraham to circumcise himself and Isaac hundreds of years before Moses and the rest of the law came. So the Jews held on to circumcision and they're trying to introduce it back in. Now, old habits die hard because they had been doing this for hundreds of years and they, and they want to keep doing it to try to make it. They're trying to add to the gospel here. But Paul's coming in and rebuking them and saying, look, we went to these people who these false teachers are saying are the ones who really matter. And we went with Titus and we told them, he said, I told them the gospel we proclaim in order to make sure that we were not running or had not run in vain. So Paul doesn't go up there to try to just hammer them down. He goes up and he says, look, this is what we're proclaiming. We're going to make sure we're not too off base here. And they affirm it, and, and they don't even mention anything about Titus having to be circumcised. So Paul's basically saying what he says later in chapter 3, verse 11. He says um, in Galatians, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. God's gonna, I mean, Paul's going to flesh this out more as we go through chapter 3 and 4. But he's making it clear we cannot live by the law. That's why we needed a Savior. That's why we needed Christ. And Jesus is trying to get this message over and over and over in his ministry communicated. Um, because, again, these, these Jewish leaders had created all of these extra rules that had to be followed. And, and that was how they viewed your status before God. That was how they viewed you being close to God, is if you could keep all the rules. And so Jesus is running into this all the time in his ministry because there was extreme legalism. Listen to what he says in uh, Luke 11. Luke's in the New Testament. It's a book we might study someday. This is what it says in Luke 11, 39 through 41. Uh, 
Now the Pharisee, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So Jesus is telling them, you're missing it. You, you will never get to God by being able to keep the rules or earn his favor. You ha- it is by faith and faith alone that you have to accept Jesus' finished work. There's a reason we call it Jesus' finished work. It's finished. It's done. We don't add to it. He has accomplished it. And so um, he's trying to reiterate this. He's unequivocally denouncing the, this legalism that the Galatians are wanting to fall back into. And one other thing that hit me as I was reading this set of verses, I started thinking about some of uh, Paul's other things that happened in his life uh, and other things that you read in his letters. And if you read about Paul's life um, in Acts and you read his letters, he's never alone. He's always with somebody. He always has a team of people with him. So even here he says, I went up with Barnabas and Titus. Um, and if you if you read his letters, a lot of times he'll, saying, he'll say things like, you know, um, Epaphroditus greets you or has been laboring for you. But he has people around him all the time. And it really hit me that, um, especially in our Western culture where we can want to isolate ourselves, that um, God created the church for a reason. And it doesn't guarantee that we can't have wrong doctrine or bad theology, but he, he created the church and he blesses his people meeting together and he wants us to have community so that we meditate on his word, that we speak truth into each other's lives, that we have those who teach the word, who hold it in high regard. And so Paul is modeling that and that even though he's a church planter and he doesn't get to settle in one place for his whole life, he's always in community with people and he always has people who are with him to help protect him and them from falling into sin and bad doctrine. And so if we go on in verse uh, verse 4 through 6, Uh, we see that there are many attackers inside and outside the church. Um, It says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved from you. And from those who seemed influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. So Paul's going on here, and he's gonna—he's basically letting us know. Like I, I said, the the, uh, the the title of the sermon is "We're Free, Keep It That Way." It sounds easy, but we don't want to keep it that way. We are under attack from the enemy. We're under attack from the world, and even in our own hearts, we're tempted to want to add to the gospel or want to build onto it. And if you look at church history, there are always those who have tried to come and, and make it straight. I mean, here, this is the beginning of the church era. And the Galatians, there are people coming in trying to add on circumcision and other things to the faith. And if you look early on, there was modalism, Gnosticism, Pelagianism. You can look at every single century, essentially, from the time of Christ until now. And there are always those who have been trying to add on to the gospel and take us back into slavery. Even in our own day, we still have... Uh, lots of lots of faiths that try to identify as Christian, but but they're not. Um, whether it's Jehovah's Witness or Church of Latter Day Saints, they try to take the gospel and add onto it and put us back into slavery. Um, and and we even have attacks from outside the church 
uh, again, we live kind of in post-modernity, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of people who question um, if we should even have if the Bible even matters, or if it's antiquated, or should we still hold to doctrines such as hell and original sin? Um, and sometimes it comes from those in in academia or science. Uh, sometimes it comes from just you know others who are, are atheists or agnostics. Uh, sometimes it just comes from you know pop culture, movies, and songs. Uh, I'm reading a, a biography, uh, the autobiography right now of Willie Nelson, um, which I'm not saying I, I condone. He has some rough things in it. Um, but he talks about he was uh, raised in the church, and his, he was raised by his grandparents, and they went to church every Sunday. And that was actually how he fell in love with music. Um, and they would be at church sometimes for long periods of time, like three, four, five hours. So much shorter time than we're going to have here. So really pay attention. I mean, he was there longer <laughs> And and look how it turned out for him. So, um, so you got to be you got to be vigilant. Um, but he talks about how he saw the genius of Christianity, and and he he saw the teachings of Christ, and he says even I still hold to that. I, he would consider himself a Christian, but as he's gone on and developed in life, he's found other teachings that he's added to that to complement it. And and I think that's a big thing of what people are tempted to do today is to take what they like about Christianity and add other things to it, or take what they don't like about Christianity and reject it and still try to hold on to the other things. And so we've got to be, we have to be vigilant um, to, to seek God and to not add. We are free to pursue in Christ, but it doesn't mean that any belief is permissible. You cannot say you believe the teachings of Jesus Christ and you hold to them, and you also believe and hold to the teachings of universalism. They are not, they cannot coexist. And yet we have a lot of that where people try to bring in a, even in our day and time where there, um, a lot of people hold logic and, and rational thinking in high regard, a lot of times we still try to bring these mutually exclusive things together and say they both are both true, and you can't do that. And so, again, it's important for us to teach the Word, to meditate on it, and not allow Satan to, to warp our thinking, and especially not allow him to isolate us, because that's when we're especially prone to, um, to perversion of the truth and turning away. So we go on in verse 7, um, and, and again, that's one of the reasons why we meet together every week, why we have community groups. A lot of the things that we do, the reasons behind why we do them are we want to, to protect and preserve and love each other well. So in verse 7, he goes on and he says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And he's going to go on later there and say, um, they saw it was the same gospel and they extended us the right hand of fellowship. So essentially they, they, they conferred that we have the same doctrine. Um, and as I was thinking about this, God, I felt like God put in my heart that we, have, we all have one purpose. All of us, our purpose is to glorify God. That's how we find, um, that's the only way that we can find peace in life. That's the only way that we can really uh, find joy. But God has a lot of different plans for our lives. And so that doesn't mean that he's going to work his His his, our purpose is not necessarily going to be worked the same way uh, in, in every regard. So um, Paul had been set apart by God for the Gentiles. Peter had been set apart by God for the Jewish people. And, so, and, they, and they're okay with this. They're, they're fully affirming God's call on both of their lives. And it can be easy as believers. Um, sometimes the way we want to add to the gospel is not by actually adding to the gospel, but it's again by adding legalism. And so I'll, I'll give you an example, um, adoption. So I'm so thankful that um, 
so many Christians in the last two or three decades uh, have really seen adoption as a way to care for the poor, as a way to evangelize. We hold uh, adoption in high regard at TCC. A lot of people here either have adopted or are pursuing adoption. So, um, but, it, but it's going too far. It's adding to the gospel if you say every Christian has to adopt. And you can make all of these arguments that, that are biblical and logical, like God calls us to care for the orphan. And orphan care is very, very close to the heart of God. Or, um, you know, if every Christian adopted, that would go a long way in helping solve the problem and reducing the number of orphans. Or, you know, we in America have been blessed with, with extreme material wealth. So there's a responsibility to use that to help those who don't have it. Or uh, there are some people who are in hopeless situations and it's our job to come in with a gospel. And all of those arguments are, are good and right, but to call all Christians that they have to adopt is overstepping. It's taking something that, that is good and is, as Sean said last week, even necessary care for the poor and is making it foundational. So um, it, it's really tempting and it doesn't have to be adoption. It could be prison ministry. It could be um, helping victims of uh, natural disasters, helping women that have been abused. It could be a variety of things and you could make really strong arguments as to why all Christians should be involved in all of those causes. But we're taking ourselves and our plan, which is not perfect, and we're trying to set it up against God's plan, which is perfect. And so I'm so thankful that there are people who are involved in prison ministry, and there are people who are involved in uh, adoption and other causes. But even here, Peter and Paul, I mean, Paul could have gone to Peter and said, hey man, the Jewish people have had the law for hundreds of years. Jesus did almost all of his ministry with maybe one or two small exceptions in Judea, to the Jewish people. They have the priests. They've had the law, the Torah of God. They're all, most of the people in the world are Gentile. They're all these Gentiles that never even heard of Jesus. Why are you wasting your time with the Jews? It's more, it's better, it's more profitable for you to come with me to the Gentiles. But that's not what we see in scripture here. They both existed in, in perfect trust that God was working his plan. And that's where it's important for us to trust the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the lives of others and to pray that God will move hearts and burden hearts. And I'm not saying that that means you can't ever go to someone and, and express maybe an area of, of admonishment because you see apathy or a blind spot. But we have to be really careful of taking the things that God's burdened our hearts with and overlaying it over, over the whole church. Um, and unfortunately, I've seen that, and I've seen people leave our church because the whole church or not enough people in their mind were involved in what they really felt like was burdening the heart of God, and, and so they just left. And um, again, I get it because when you are bur- when God opens your eyes to something and you are burdened for it, you see the brokenness and you see the pain and you see the desperation and you see the hope that the gospel can come in and shed light on. And so it should create um, love and affection and motivation to want to have God to use you. But we've got to be careful that, that we are doing that and trusting the Holy Spirit's work in other people's lives. And you can pray that God will raise up because he does, he does do that. I mean, we have a, a, a career development program here that I'm so thankful for that God has been using believers in our church um, to, to, to bear fruit for the gospel. But it's not something that the whole church has to be involved in or we're all failing in the work of the gospel. Um, so that's what, that's what um, I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying there is we've got to trust his work and we've got to pray and be faithful we've also got to trust his work in the hearts of others. 
In verse 8, Paul moves and he talks a little bit more uh, about this idea. He says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So he's saying, hey, we have these different, God has these different, one purpose, we're going to glorify him, different plans. He's for the Jewish people, I'm for the non-Jewish people, for the Gentiles. Um, but it's the same spirit. It's the same spirit that works in all of us. And I was thinking about this sometimes when I'm tempted to doubt the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in my heart is the exact same Holy Spirit that was in Peter, that was in Paul, that was in St. Augustine, that was in the other apostles, that was in John Calvin, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham. It's the same Holy Spirit. When we're tempted to feel desperate or to feel hopeless, that nothing's gonna ch- that sin's not going to change in our heart or someone is not going to change their beliefs, it's the same Holy Spirit. It's one Spirit full of power and truth that works. So don't be discouraged for he who worked through Peter and Paul, he does the same in your heart. In verse 9, Paul's going to wrap all this up and confirm it and say, look, we have the same gospel. We have different missions, um, different, different plans, same purpose, but we all agreed that there's one spirit working together. And so he says this in verse 9, and when James and Cephas, again, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that was given to me, that they get, um, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to, Bar- to me, to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. And Luther in his commentary, he says, it's as if the apostles had said to him, we, meaning the apostles, to you, Paul, do agree with you in all things. We are companions in doctrine. We have the same gospel. So Paul is saying, look, you don't have to um, get the gospel from one place. I went to these guys. I was not from them. I didn't hear the gospel from them. We had different missions, same, same purpose, but different missions. And we all agree that it's the same doctrine. It's the same thing that we're pursuing. And so um, it was basically that right hand of fellowship was a way of kind of condoning showing acceptance. Um, So Paul wants everybody to know that he and the disciples in Jerusalem are boys, that they're all together. They're all in it together. And then verse 10, we get this, we've had 23 verses of like, this is who I was. This is how God saved me. This is who I am. This is the gospel. This is why we're freeing it. This is why we don't want to go back into slavery. Care for the poor. So it's like this little throw in here, but we're going to flesh it out later. It says, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, is he saying, is he adding on to the gospel? He's not. And we're going to spend some time in Galatians 6 when we get there talking about what it means to care for the poor. Um, it's very close to the heart of God. And But again, I thought Sean did a great job last week. It's important. It's necessary. But it's not foundational. Care for the poor does not save us. It does not earn us God's favor or get us on his side. It's an overflow of affection out of our hearts that we want to do that. And there are a lot of ways to care for the poor. Again, we don't have time to go into all of them. But God's called us to be generous. Whether that's through relief, through rehabilitation, or through development, God's called us to be generous. Just as we're called to imitate Christ and extend grace because he's extended grace to us, we're called to be generous and extend generosity the way that he's, he's extended generosity to us. And that can look a lot of different ways. Again, that's where we have to be careful to not try to drag everyone in to our own burdens. So I want to just close and summarize 
Um, with this passage, again, Paul is trying to let us know that there's one gospel, and that is the only gospel from God. There is no other, there is no other secret out there. It, this is the one true gospel. Everything else is a lie, and it's part of, of, of the master deception from Satan. Again, that's his natural state. So there's one gospel, and that's the only gospel. That gospel that we have is the only gospel from God. And we are free to pursue Christ. So don't imprison yourself again. Don't add to the gospel. Don't put yourself back into a, a, a cell of confinement. Enjoy Christ. Enjoy that freedom. Enjoy that love and affection. And there's one spirit that works through all of our hearts. So the same spirit that has worked in whoever your heroes of the faith are, it's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same power of God that dwells in your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I come to you right now. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you use broken vessels, Lord. I thank you that there, um, that there is not a, a, an ability or an IQ test to be a follower of you, Lord. I thank you that you love us, that you use us. In fact, as Sean said, you use foolishness to show how powerful you are. You use us as, as foolish, broken vessels to show how powerful you are. So I pray right now as we reflect on these words, I just pray, Lord, for wisdom. I pray for truth. And I do pray for joy and freedom, Lord. I pray that we will remember just as we enjoy fun memories with best friends, we can enjoy affection and, and communion with you. In your name, amen. So we're going to go to a time of communion. Um, we have a table in front, uh, two or a table in the back, two up front. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, this is an important meal because it's a time to reflect on the freedom that he's given us. The reason we follow him is because um, he chose us, he did the work, and he saved us. It's not what we did. So reflect on that freedom and rejoice. If you're not a follower of Christ, don't go to one of these tables, but use the time. Again, there's nothing that you that you have done that's unforgivable. You can call out to him and he will meet you. He will forgive you and he will save you. So we're going to use this time um, to go to when you're ready. You can go get it and take it at your seat when you're ready. Um, and then we'll, we'll sing a little bit and then close um, with a blessing from Ephesians. Mm -hmm.